0: Hey there, Andrea here. I'm so excited because I have such an awesome guest on the show today, and you are going to have so many nuggets of wisdom just, you know, transferred into your brain after this episode. So thank you so
1: much for being on the show. I am so excited. Please introduce yourself. My name is uh, Constance Scharf. I have a PhD in transformative studies. I'm a speaker and author on complementary therapies that help with the treatment of addiction and trauma.
0: Oh my gosh. So tell us a little bit how you got into this world. I know it's not just overnight when you have your PhD, that's years and years of research and study. And yes. So, so tell me how this all got started for you. How did your, you know, you, you start focusing on this idea of transformation?
1: Well, I was, uh, sober. I, uh, was, uh, suffering from alcoholism. I started drinking when I was 11. Uh, I eventually got sober at 25. I have uh, 23 years of sobriety, um, currently continuous sobriety. But I was uh, I was in grad school studying something completely different. And uh, the veterans were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And I wanna say I was probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years sober at that point seven, eight years sober at that point. And I was suicidally depressed because I had so much trauma. I had so many trauma symptoms all the time. And I watched these veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and they were not able to get sober uh, for most of them. And a number of them were killing themselves. And so I thought this isn't what sobriety is about. This isn't what recovery is about. Um, there has to be better treatment for us. And so I dropped what I was doing in grad school, changed everything around. And I started looking at complementary therapies that are easily accessible, that don't have tremendous downside to them and how they can help us live better lives. And I have to say, my personal life has been transformed by it because I try all the therapies on myself. To make sure that they work, that they don't harm you, that, you know, the side effects are what they say they are. And it's really changed my life.
0: Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that you, you know, you, you've done the research, but you've also done the, the experimentation on yourself. Um, so of course our listeners are people who, um, are maybe struggling with loving someone with an addiction. So it's nice to have you here. You know, you, you have the, the opposite side, um, you have the addiction piece, but you also have this um, huge resource of research and study and education that, um, I'm just curious, like, where should we dig in? Because i I bet you there's so many things that will help our listeners and help someone struggling with loving someone from addiction from that perspective, because let's face it, it comes with trauma. It comes with betrayal trauma. It comes with, you know, so many, you know, elements of struggle and turmoil that it would be really wonderful if we can just, you know, talk to that, to that listener, talk to that person who might be in
1: the muck of struggling with that. Well, I think the hardest thing for someone who loves someone who has a substance abuse issue, an eating disorder, some sort of some sort of addiction, uh, gambling, sex, whatever it happens to be, is that it feels like it's about us. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's about, you know, what did I do? Why can't I help them? Why don't they listen to me? And what I can tell you from the other side is it has nothing to do with you. <laughs> You know, and this is especially hard for the parents. I work with a lot of people who have adult children in particular, who have substance abuse problems. Like, what did I do wrong? You know, but the truth of addiction is that, let's say you invite, I'm, I'm actively using and you invite me to your wedding. I want to come to your wedding because I love you. But when you say, well, you can't come if you're, if you're drunk or you can't do these things or whatever. No, no, that, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic and I'm going to show up to your wedding drunk, or I'm not going to show up because I'm too drunk to get there, or I'm going to make a scene, or I'm not going to make a scene. It's not about you. I have to drink first, and then whatever happens is what happens. you know. And so I don't do these things to hurt you, right? When I'm in my addiction, I don't do these things to hurt you. I do them because I have to do them. And so what that means is that the person who loves an addict, then has to create really strong boundaries and a strong community of support, right? So that, you know, when the addict acts out, which is inevitable, right? The addict is going to drive when they shouldn't and, and crash the car into the thing and 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 spend the money that, you know, was for the, all those things are inevitably gonna happen. It isn't about you. And so you have to have that support system. And, you know, this again, so hard, especially for parents, you know, I'll get parents, I'll do anything to help my child. Okay. Do you pay for their cell phone? Well, yes. So that they can call me and I can call them and we can stay in contact. I'm like, but that's the cell phone they call their dealer with. So you will love them to death. You know, it's, it's about, am I, am I doing what is comfortable for me or am I doing what is right to help this person hit a bottom? right? To see, because if we don't have any consequences to our actions, there's no reason for us to get sober, you know, and and the parents say, well, they might die. And the truth is they might die. Mm. The truth is they might die, but I can guarantee that we're not going to get the results doing this path of loving them to death. And that is hard. It's hard for me to say, and it's hard for someone to hear you know, but I was that person. I was that person. I lived uh, right before I got sober. I moved in with my grandparents. They were 85 and they needed some, they were starting to need some help. And, uh, they had a little bit of money. This is back in the nineties, right? So this is a long time ago. Um, they had a little bit of money and you didn't get the kind of consequences for like drunk driving that you do now. And, uh, if I had gone to the hospital, if I had, uh, you know, gotten into legal trouble, they would have made it go away. And at 22 years old, my liver and kidneys were dying. I was dying. And I really realized, I was like, they're going to love me into my grave because they're going to, they're in denial and they're going to make anything, any negative consequence go away. And I was fortunate that I, that I was like, wow, you are about to die kid. And you need to do something, something different. And I did. Oh my gosh, you
0: raised so many amazing, amazing points here. And I, I'm so grateful for you being here, sharing your perspective of it. Um, because I know that a lot of the listeners will have a lot of questions around that. And definitely, um, and, and the importance here is recognizing, I love the way you brought brought it up, that it has nothing to do with you. No, and exactly. I remember when I was in the muck of it, I was definitely thinking that, you know, it was all about me. Like, and I started questioning my own thing. Am I fun? Like, am I not fun? Does he have to go to that house to be fun? And, you know and, and it really is you make it all about you it's like if he loved me enough he would stop or
1: you know that's that's the key one that I kept saying a lot actually right and if you read if you read something like the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous it specifically says that like you know the the family is like why won't you know if he loved her he wouldn't do that I mean it's, it literally says that yeah. and so you know the but the addict plays on that Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily conscious. I would say most of the time it's not, but if you make it about you, then why am I not going to make it about you? Well, listen, if you just treated me better, if you paid more attention to me, if you, you know, helped me out more, if you didn't put so much stress on me, if you didn't make so many demands of me, then I wouldn't have to do. So that sickness really, it just like that. Because because the the codependent person the other the non addict in the relationship takes on the responsibility but you're not responsible for someone else's actions that's the that's the most insidious thing about about addiction addictive relationship you know where one person's an addict and one person's not or even if both people are addicts it's that is that the non addicted person or the Uh, one who's having fewer consequences if they both have uh, substance abuse problems is takes on responsibility and said, if I could just clean the house better, you know, that wouldn't make any difference. None of those things make any difference.
0: Yes. If I could just love hard enough, you know, he would stop or, okay. So you raised so many great points. I want to capture this. You're not responsible for another person's action. That is the hardest thing to grasp because we do whatever we can to try and help because that's really what any, you know, sober loving person would do is try and, you know, help the person that we love. It's funny because everything that you think that you would normally do to try and help someone you love, it's almost like with addiction, it goes out the window. Like, It does. Can you
1: you speak to that? Yeah. So for example, if you had an adult child who lost their job, right? Through no, because of COVID, for example, right? They were working in 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 the restaurant business and they lost their job and they didn't have any money and they needed someplace to stay. It would be totally appropriate to say, hey, I get you're an adult, but come stay here. We got room. Let me help you with the kids. What can we do to make this work? When you do that with someone who say loses their job because of a substance abuse problem, then you have a different problem because now you become an enabler. Mm. So there really is this, wait a minute, that would be appropriate that in other circumstances. And so the thing with addiction is we want to allow a person to feel the consequences of their actions. So if you, You know, you drink every morning and then you can't show up for work and you're fired. Okay, well, then what happens to you? Now, you might want to take the kids in, right? If there's kids, you you might want to take the grandkids into your house and say, okay, you get to deal with this. But we really want people to feel the consequences of their actions. If we don't, there's no reason for them to change their behavior. And the addiction continues to get more insidious. This is different than tough love. I'm not a fan of tough love because tough love is suck it up. You know, it isn't about I I like to be very gentle with people and say, you know what? You did this and now this is the result. And that I think, you know, and the addict will say, no, you're mean, it's you, you, you know, didn't raise me right, you weren't a good spouse, you, you know, coddled the children and now they hate me. No, no, the children hate you because you uh, drank away their college fund and hit their mom. That's why they hate you, right? Not because I did anything. And we also, too, have to be sure that we're not doing anything that's vindictive. Mm -hmm. And that is hard to do when people hurt us.
0: Oh, it's so hard when people hurt us, you've hit the nail on the head there. So you really are emphasizing the importance of them feeling the consequences of their actions, but at the same time, do it in a way that is you know, compassionate. So you're, you're, you're really saying, well, actually, this is how it is. It's like, this is, you know, that is, you know, instead of tough love, instead of, you know, being aggressive in nature, but it's also like standing into staying into your power, right? Standing in your power and owning like, you know what, actually, this is what happened. And this is how it made me feel. And and that's actually the reality of the
1: situation. Well, and the the Buddhists would call it non-attachment or detachment, right? Mm. Where it's like, I don't have to get hooked by you. That's the the hard part for the codependent, right? Is I get hooked by you, or I feel some sort of responsibility, or I want to make sure that it doesn't all fall apart or whatever. And, uh, you know, I'll I'll share a personal story. My father was not, my father was very abusive, but he was not an addict. And uh, he hit my mother once. And I mean, he beat her. Like she had... This close to needing to go to the hospital. She picked up and left. And she had nothing. She went to her mom's house, you know. But I have so much respect for her because she said, you know what? They're just some like, it wasn't me, right? She wasn't saying to herself, it was me. I caused it. I, you know, wasn't a good enough wife. He was already in other relationships at that point, but she like, no, no, you are not gonna, you are not going to lay hands on me like that more than once. And so it's that ability to be able to detach your actions from another person's actions. That's so that's so critical, you know, especially when you love someone who isn't that well, you know, I was working with, with someone and they're what I call a right fighter. And, you, and you'll hear this term. It's not, I didn't coin this term, but, um, you, you hear Dr. Phil talks about it all the time, right fighting, right. I want to be right. You know, and, and how we work with a right fighter is: Do you want to be right? Or do you want to be happy? Well, this person wanted to be right. So I don't work with them anymore. Okay. You can be right. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play that game because it makes me uncomfortable. And there's no, you know, that person's not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. Like that's it, not how I fight. It's not how I argue, and I'm not gonna do it. I know who I am, what my value is, and I don't let other people devalue me. And that's the hard thing to do when you're in relationship with an addict because they need to drag you down. Because they feel so bad about themselves.
0: Mm. Okay, you raise so many amazing points here too. I love this idea of detachment. It sounds so much easier, easier said than done. So oh, love
1: completely, to- completely. Let's yeah. just call it what it is, but not, not you know, uh, pretend that it's simple. It's not. Yes. It's very hard. So, and I love this,
0: that you brought up this idea of fierce. Um, and I'm reading this book, Fierce Self-Compassion right now by Kristen Neff, actually. And one of the elements in there is like honoring, yes, nurture yourself and offer self-compassion in a nurturing manner. But then there's the flip side to it, which is the fierce compassion, self-compassion. It's almost like turning your anger turning your, the emotions of, you know, frustration and to make change in your life. And it sounds like that story that you just shared, it was like, there were, practicing this fierce, self-compassion to assert themselves and, and remove themselves. So I I love that you brought up that idea of, you know, detaching from, from that, and then also honoring and and doing it in a compassionate way that when you need to take action.
1: It's true. and I mean, and, and the, you know, what's interesting is these aren't new concepts. Um, like I said, if you read in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about this in there too. Now the, the language is very dated and it makes me a little crazy, but the <laughs> concepts are there, right? The concepts are there that, listen, if your partner, child, parent, whatever, doesn't want to make a change, you go about your life you raise your kids, you go to your job, you do your volunteer work, you get out there and feed your livestock in the morning if you're living on a farm, right? You do your thing and they're going to do theirs. And you can still love them. There is nothing wrong with that. But you're not going to make it easier for them to drag you down. And that is hard, especially when you see them failing. You know, my uh, I have a cousin who is... Um, she lost her, she lost her daughter to addiction. She technically to sepsis, but she'd been shooting, you know, dope for 15 years. So, um, she lost her to addiction. And, uh, I remember when she invited her to her wedding and she knew that the daughter would come to the wedding high, you know, but when she went on the nod and her breast fell out of her dress in the middle of the ceremony, Someone just walked over, you know, yanked her dress back up, sat her back in her chair and they went on because they wanted her there. And those were the circumstances. And when she, when she died, you know, everyone was devastated, but we talked about it. We talked about this is, we, we lose people. We lose people. And she, this, this cousin of mine who was, you know, the mother of this one has gone on and had done really incredible things. Working with other people who may or may not lose their children, right? Some of them do, some of them don't, but she shows up for everybody else. That's beautiful. That's non attachment.
0: Non-attachment. And and it's so funny because I remember Googling how not to care or how to detach. I remember in the moments where like, how do I, you know, and it is, it is so challenging. Do you have any, you know, usable nuggets or, um, or any suggestions
1: around that? Yeah. So I actually read, uh, both Pema Chodron and the Dalai Lama because they really get, especially Pema Chodron really, because she's Western, she gets the, the, you know, Western mind that we have it's normal to have feelings you know if uh someone cuts me off right while I'm driving I might say a few choice words right it would be appropriate you know but you know uh, the Dalai Lama lost his country he had to flee from his country and Tibet is part of China for what I don't know 60 80 years now whatever it is I mean forever you know and uh, I guess it's 60 65 years but um he doesn't regurgitate it. He doesn't stay in a mind loop. And so the thing for me is when I notice that I am starting to keep thinking about when I'm starting to get hooked, I call it getting hooked, right? When I'm starting to get hooked, I say, okay, I'm starting to get hooked. And then I look for something that I can do for someone else. Because if I'm left to my own devices, I'm going to think about me and all the things that you've done to me and it doesn't work for me. So I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get hooked here. I'm going to walk the dog. I'm going to call someone who I know is having a hard time. I'm going to go to my elderly neighbor's house and see if there's something I can do for her. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to not let myself simmer in that. And the other thing is to have a meditate, a prayer and meditation practice. Because if you have that, then my experience is you're more likely to recognize when that hook is coming or see yourself before you're really, really in it. Because the more you're in it, the harder it is to break free. I also, you know, there's a, a idea called restraint of pen and tongue. If I want to tell you what an SOB you are, I probably should uh, call somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should call somebody. It's like, well, wait a minute. Don't say that yet. You know, I, I very often I leave, you know, um, emails in the draft folder, right? <laughs> I don't put that person's email address in when I'm writing something because then it doesn't get sent accidentally, right? Like all that stuff you know, or write a letter and then rip it up, you know, write a letter by hand, all those things, they really help, they really help. It also, that community of support is so critical. You know, people who are going through or have been through what you have is, is, is terribly important
0: hmm so true and I love this idea too about um really that emotions are normal these feelings are normal it's normal to have feelings and I I love how you have those buffers where you can like you know buy some time or even process it with your emails before not even sending them or or even just not sending them just you know processing oh I have a feeling it's like acknowledging that instead of ruminating and regurgitating those emotions and and sitting in them I always say like it's you know it's 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 like reliving them over and over
1: again. You are. I mean, that's what resent means. Re, again, sent, sentiment, feel, to feel something over and over again. It's not just anger. It's all sorts of things. You know, and I think we have an unrealistic expectation of what our feelings are and what they do and and their role that they play. You know, feelings, as again, I'm borrowing from other people, are not facts, Right. So I might feel a certain way, but that's going to change. You know, I'm talking to you on a computer. That's a fact. How I feel about it depends on where I am today, where I am in the in the in the relationship. You know, it's funny. Someone uh, said uh, to me that um, I would had an argument with someone. And this person said, you know, you're not telling me the same thing as the other person. I said, well, we should all be talking about oranges, right? We should all be the, the facts of the of the argument should be the same. But how the person that I had the argument with and I see that situation is going to be vastly different. So with an addict, for example, right, they're going to say, hey, you're unfair, you're mean, you're not doing what you promised. Like, they're going to have this litany of things that you didn't do. And you have to know in yourself, right, is that true? Hmm. Is that true? Did I make a commitment to take you to the grocery store and then not follow up on it? All right, well, then I need to look at that. But what I need to look at is, should I be making commitments to take you to the grocery store? Right? Okay, if I said I was going to do it, I need to, I need to put, you know, the walk, whatever talk I have. So if I say I'm going to do something, I need to do it, but I don't have to do it again. And I certainly don't have to do anything if you are, you know, nasty and abusive about it. You know, or if you're entitled, I don't have to do those things. I'll do it the one time I said I was going to do it, but you ain't going to see me again. You know, there's a, um, I don't know who it was, but it was some, um, it was a musician, I believe, who said, uh, I'll forgive you, but I don't have to invite you to my table again to have dinner. Oh, that's good. You know, and so I get to draw those boundaries and say, you know and one other thing you know that i'm i'm thinking of as as we talk about this is that there are time limits on things you know for the addict time is just it's just an endless my experience is that it's an endless i'm drunk and then i'm uh, sick and then i'm drunk and then i'm sick and then i'm drunk and then i'm sick every day is the same and when i was drinking i was living in southern california and so it was always sort of the same warm and sunny, warm and sunny, cooler and sunny in the winter, warmer and sunny in the the summer, but it was always warm and sunny. So there were no seasons, nothing was changing. I was just drinking and then I was sick and then I was drinking and I was sick. Kids get older, parents get older, relationships change through neglect, through abuse, through all sorts of things. And so there will come a time where such and so just isn't interested anymore isn't going to engage him or especially children. And you might get sober, right? And then they still aren't interested. My, uh, I I work at 12 step program and I have a sponsor. And and he said to me, he said, it was very interesting. He said he went to a wedding, wedding, excuse me, a funeral for someone who had been sober a very long time and did a lot of very good service for addicts and, and alcoholics and sobriety. And the the funeral was just packed, packed, packed with pe- hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Two children. He had two children. One daughter did not come to the funeral. The other uh, said, got up and gave a eulogy. And she said, this is all very interesting. Let me tell you the man that I knew. Mm. And even though he had gotten sober and he had done all these wonderful things, her experience as a child and a young adult was so horrible that there was no reparation for that. There was no um, rebuilding that relationship, mm. you know, and for me, you know, I had early childhood trauma. My my father was very, very sexually abusive to the point where I don't remember 3 years of my life i have some very foggy memories and he died very suddenly right before i got sober it's what actually was my catalyst to getting sober because i realized oh wait a minute i don't drink because of him i thought i drink because i was scared of him i don't drink because of him i drink because i'm an alcoholic and before the end of the year i was i was you know trying to to recover but i have had the luxury of distance from him He's been dead, I don't know, 26, 27 years now. And so I got to do my work without him reinserting himself into my process. It is very hard. And for you know people who their, their loved one is still alive, whether they're sober or using, they reinsert themselves into your own recovery process. And that can be very difficult. And there's not much to do for that except acknowledge it. Okay, that's really hard. It was much easier for me to be like, "Oh wait, he's really dead." Okay, it's just about me now.
0: Oh, I love the way you said, that. "It's just about me now." And there's so, so, oh my gosh, the listeners are going to love everything that you are talking about. It's going to help. They're going to go, yep. Mm-hmm. Like even that example, because it is so true. Like wh- you have so much built up pain and resentment and trauma and anger and disappointment and frustration that come with that. So, and, and you do touch a little bit and you touched a little bit on the idea and the importance of boundaries and a supportive community and that change is possible, which is beautiful. And then I love how you interweave this idea of healing Um, And so let's, let's, can we talk about that? Like, and the the whole premise of this podcast is like, let's take back your power and, you know, focus on you. And, you know, we don't have control over other people's choices. So
1: I would love to go in that direction. That's great. Cause that's what I was thinking. I was like, I was like, I don't know how much time we have left, but I want to talk about healing. Healing. (laughs) I think it's the most important thing. So, you know, my PhD is in transformative studies. People are like, what's that? That's okay. Because there's not very many of us who are in that field. I study how change occurs. Mm -hmm. And for me, there's no greater example of a person who changes than someone who goes from active addiction to recovery. It's, It's a tremendous transformation. You don't recognize the person anymore. And so what I have found, and I was really lucky when I got out of grad school, a friend of mine created a position for me in research at a a treatment facility that he owned. And he said, you can go anywhere in the world you want, work with any researcher you want, find best practices. And what I looked at are complementary therapies that are used in conjunction with more traditional forms of psychotherapy, whether that's positive psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interview, there's lots of different kinds of therapies. Um, I actually like somatic experiencing. I think is fantastic. It has helped me tremendously. I do something called radical aliveness, um, and it uses some some principles of um, that you find in positive psychology as well. But what I really looked at in in my work is what are the complementary therapies that we can use because I do not accept this idea that people with most mental health issues are some sort of patholog that they should be pathologized, that you're not sick, right? Now, there are some things that I'm like, well, I don't know, but it's a handful because what happens is, you know, your your partner dies and you're grieving. And because you're still grieving six months later, somebody says, you really should take a pill for that. (laughs) No, grief is a normal process. So how do we change and what i what i have found is that first of all you have to find some sort of psychotherapy that works for you I couldn't do traditional, I did traditional talk therapy for over 20 years. It didn't really help me because, because of my kind of trauma, I was very dissociated. So I could tell you everything that happened and whatnot, but I didn't have any emotional attachment. So there was no healing. So I had to get a place where I could identify and feel my feelings. But the other part is there are so many complementary practices that any one of them is pretty useless, but together, they have a synergy and they are more than the sum of their parts. So for example, you know, I, if you do music therapy, right? So think about if you have a bad day, you don't have to do traditional music therapy. If you have a bad day and you're in your car, you know, stuck in traffic and a song you like comes on the radio and you sing along, do your own carpool karaoke, you <laughs> feel better, you feel better. Yeah. That's a neurochemical response. That's, and so, so we know that. So we bring, we bring music programming into addiction treatment, into mental health, into trauma treatment centers, into VA hospitals, into youth centers, right? We bring that in. So acupuncture, which I love because it's passive. You just lie there and they stick needles in you. Uh, Music, arts therapies, meditation, yoga. But I want to be clear with yoga. It's not the poses. It's the breathing. You know, I I read something, I can't remember where I read it, but I read something recently that said, we're not made of human stuff, right? We're made of, essentially, we're made of mud. I mean, uh, we're made of, you know, earth chemicals, right? With a bunch of water poured in. How that turns into meat is sort of a, you know, (laughs) but we're animated, right, meat suits, right? And then we've talked about that, you know, people have talked about that forever but it's like, wait a minute, I'm not made of anything distinctly human, right? So that really feeds in, but what is one thing that really is, what is the thing that shows me that I'm alive? So I have breath. Well, when when I made that connection, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So all these yogis and meditation masters, they're all focusing on breathing because that is the essence of life. If you read the Torah or the Old Testament, depending on whatever your religious tradition is, it says, when does life begin? It begins with the breath. And when does it end? It ends with the breath. I just watched a, a Harry Potter, cause I love all the Harry Potter, but I just was watching Harry Potter last night and uh, and and Snape dies. I lo- It kills me when Snape dies. I just love Snape. And what happens? <sighs> Huge exhale. That is in storytelling, that is our key. Snape's dead, how do we know? Because he gave that great exhale. He's not breathing anymore. So these things together, right? These things together really change our practice. So if you wake up in the morning and you spend even three minutes saying, all right, today, you know, connecting with whatever spiritual higher power you have, breathing for a few minutes, settling yourself and saying, okay, now we're gonna go. And then pausing every time you get agitated, bringing some music, bringing some exercise, bringing in the good food. The thing that kills me, I'm terrible about, you know, I'm gonna eat the Rice Krispie treats. Oh, we got (laughs) the lockdown. (laughs) <laughs> Mama went because, you know, I, who knew how what that was going to look like when that first started? Mama went to the store and got all the hostess, all the rice. I was like, I can't eat. Like, I want to eat out of a box, right? Because then I don't have to cook. I don't have to chop. I don't have, oh, what comes out of a box? Okay. That is not taking care of me. And that's really the thing about healing is where can I make tiny little changes? I just don't buy those things. Oh I just God. don't buy those things, right? So then I don't have them in the house. And I'm too lazy, right? Once my pajamas go on, I ain't going out of the house again. I, that's not happening. Right. So, so what are the things that will work for you? For me, having a gym membership doesn't do anything. Having a little dog that needs to go for a walk. And if I'm sitting there lazy in bed, well, first of all, you're gonna pee on the floor, which isn't very exciting. But the other part is uh, you know, he looks at me with his little face and all he wants to do is go outside all right so you got to do what works for you but there are so many complementary practices that are easily available and they're taught in addiction treatment centers they're taught there so that you can go home and continue them and family members can get that information from books from youtube from you know Al-Anon, from all sorts of different places. But there's a lot of information there about complementary practices that you can easily do in your life. They don't cost anything and you can have a much, much better life
0: what I love about what you're saying is that this idea of baby steps and, and, and and it's the compound effect. So working synergistically on all these different things that we can do will help us to heal and help us, you know, process what could be really challenging, difficult times in our lives. Um, And so I love that you bring it up because it's really true. Like what works for one person may not work for another, what worked for you last year may not work for you now. Like, so it's really a great idea to, um, to look for um forms of healing that really resonate with you. And I love the way you position it and like things like music therapy. Yes, when you're in the car and you're you know, put up, you know, or even if you want to process some of those stressful emotions, play a really sad song. I remember I used to listen to the
1: banner song all the time, like you got it in you. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because back in the I want to say it was the late 80s, you know, there was all that criticism about metal, like metal made people kill, and it was the devil's music. And if you played it backwards, it called Satan or something, right? There was all this criticism, but the research is interesting. The research actually says that people who listen to metal and hard rock are actually less angry than the general population, and they have a better way of processing that emotion. Mm -hmm. So I've worked with a music organization that brings music programming into... Um, addiction treatment and mental health facilities. And one of the things that uh, the musicians in that program do is they let people express that darkness. You know, I do it with storytelling, right? I call it flip the script because whatever you, t- your, all your brain does is make stories. Your brain sees a whole bunch of different details and it makes stories. And that's why, right, when two people are arguing, they're like, wait a minute, this is what's happening. The other person is like, no, 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 this is what's happening. It's because our brains have made different stories right? Remember, feelings are not facts. Perception isn't fact either. It's only fact for me, right? If I perceive it that way, that is my reality, right? And so if you flip the script, so to speak, then you can, if you change the story, you quite literally change your reality. There's a story about a man who was told that if he really truly believed it, there was a mountain outside of his window. If he really truly believed it, the mountain would be gone in the morning. And he you know, meditated on it. He's like, that mountain's gonna be gone in the morning. And when he woke up, the mountain was still there. He said, see, I told you, it wouldn't work. That's what our brains do. So I used to believe, I used to be 325 pounds. I used to be a lot heavier than I am now. And while I'm not thin, Now, by any stretch, I was able to to lose and keep off a lot of weight. And what happened for me is I used to tell myself, you have to be very heavy to be safe. Because I thought if I was just this huge, immovable mound of flesh, then no one would hurt me, right? I'd have choices about who I had sex with and so on and so forth. And no one would force themselves on me and so on and so forth which was actually untrue. I had predators all the time come after me, no matter what my weight was. As soon as I realized that that wasn't true, that what was attracting them was some sort of whatever that said, I'm an easy target. I'm going to do what you want. All of a sudden the weight came off and the predators went away. I haven't had a, I haven't had someone predatory approach me in years, you know, and that's about I change. That doesn't mean that someone couldn't do whatever. But I, real, I, I realize it isn't true. It isn't true. It doesn't matter how big a mound of flesh I am. it isn't true. Oh, wait, I can be healthier in my body and more mobile and and, and yes, please, sign me up for that.
0: I love your message. I love that your message really is that recovery is possible. Absolutely. Change can happen. And not, again, some of us might be thinking, oh, good. Like, I hope the addicted loved one in my life, you know, we are automatically because our, you know, our codependency comes out. They might be thinking that, right? But I'm speaking for the person that loves someone with an addiction. Like, your message is so beautiful that recovery is possible. Change can happen in us. And it's just having that courage for this transformation, taking those baby steps and all the synergistic things that we can do
1: to help us on our healing journey. Well, that's that's the thing. That's the thing is it's not about changing them. You can't change them. And I'll say that a hundred times. You can't change them. You can't change them. You can't change them. What makes you attractive is you getting better. Right? How do people? You know, I sponsor people in my twelve step program. What, why does that happen? Because people are like, "Wow, I like the way you live your life. I want." Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? Right? And so that's the idea: is whether is that you just live your life the best you can, and then hopefully that other person's like, "Wow, look how much different they are. I want that too."
0: Hmm. I love that message. And it it offers so much hope. And I hope the listeners here are, I know they've gotten so much from your, our conversation today. And, and I hope it just like built up a little bit of, you know, more hope and hopefulness and, um, and for a better future for ourselves, right? Especially when you're struggling with loving someone with an addiction. Okay. So having said all that, I'm so thankful for your wealth of knowledge. What would, You know, for someone who is in the muck of loving someone with an addiction, what would be like the one thing you really want them to resonate with?
1: That your happiness doesn't depend on somebody else. And that it's your choice to live the life that you want. I have a very good friend who, when I call for advice, he says, you can do this when he gives me a suggestion or not, which always makes me want to do it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Where I'm like, I'm going to do that, you know, but I have that choice not to, I'm not going to tell you, you have to do this. This is that that's not my responsibility. What I can say is that there's healing and hope and your life is ticking away. While you're waiting for someone else to change theirs. And you can have a beautiful, beautiful life. You know, my life isn't what I expected. It is not what I have cho- would have chosen. You know, if I'd come up in a normalish sort of family without a ton of abuse and, you know, I, you know, might've chosen to get married. I might've chosen to have kids. I might've chosen to do a lot of different things. But with the circumstances that I came from, I said, you know what? I don't want other people to suffer like I have suffered. And my life is going to be about helping people to learn what the good therapies are. Because when I got sober, there, there was not good treatment for trauma. And I suffered a lot and now there is much better treatment, much better resources. And so I want you guys to know that that's there and it's available in a lot of different ways and it doesn't have to cost a ton of money and you can get everything online now. One of the silver linings of COVID is everything went virtual. And so all of these therapies are online For little to nothing. And you can access both the therapies and a community of support without ever leaving your home. And you do not have to pin your life and your happiness on what someone else does because you can't control that you can only control you.
0: I love that your happiness does not depend on anyone else. And that is so wonderful. Okay. Everyone's going to want to get a hold of you. So I will put all your links and everything in the show notes. But um, what are you up to these days? What are you working on? Tell us
1: a little bit about your books and things like that. So I just launched in uh, July a book called Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation. It's available on Amazon and everywhere that books are sold. The audio book, I'm hoping, is up next week. I'm hoping before Thanksgiving, but before the end of the month. Um, And I am working on a memoir. And I hope that that will be out end of next year, early 2023. Um, Because I want people to know that there's, I keep saying it, but I want people to know there's hope. So many people, we have had over the last two years, a huge increase in suicides, not just in the military community, but across the board with young people, with people who are feeling isolated, who who are, who are stuck at home. And it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't. You can have such a good life. Even if it's not what you were thinking you would have, you can have so many beautiful things. I never thought I'd have a library <laughs> in my house. <laughs> right? Like that's how things go. Become a doctor, get a library. You know, we can do so, so much. And it's all about connection, right? When we can really connect with other people and be with other people. You know, I, I had something go down recently and I'm on the text, my friend, my friend, I have a horse at at my friend's barn and uh, she's like, come on out here, Cody, that's my horse is waiting for you. And we're, you know, we're having dinner, like all the things. If you have even one or two friends like that, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. So you're, you, you are in control of your own destiny to a, to a large degree, right. In terms of making connections with people and following through on doing, you know, what's right for your personal growth. Mm.
0: Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for all your knowledge and the wonderful hope that you are going to provide the listener here. And I'm just so thankful for you being on the show and, and sharing your, your wisdom and your knowledge and your
1: experience as well. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here and I hope to speak with you again.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you want additional support, you can head on over to my website at Andreasidal.com, where we have a wonderful support of compassionate community. We also have a private Facebook group and Instagram feed called Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. Be sure to subscribe here so you get the latest episodes and of course share this with your community and your support groups or anyone going through this struggle so that we can all work together to take back our lives and restore joy. Thank you so much for joining me not only today but also week after week. I'm so grateful that I get to show up for you and share these episodes every single week so that we can go on this journey together. Until next week, Sending hugs.